It's Time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's Time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I am your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Good day to you, friends. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, wherever you may be and whenever you may be listening. We want to thank you once again for making us part of your day. We appreciate all of our listeners. And as a reminder, if you have any questions you would like us to address, please feel free to email the show at truthfamilybiblechurch at gmail.com. That's truthfamilybiblechurch, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Before we get into our topic for today, Jim, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing good. We had a great pre-show talk just now. We enjoy talking about uh, things that are important to the church. And uh, again, I love the fact that we talk about overall, we really need to keep this sense of humility about our views and what we hold. Believe what we believe, but hold on to them loosely and lightly and know that there are some areas where we can disagree. That's right. That's good. Well, we return uh, once again to the podcast and talking about uh, things that are relevant in time and in the news and things that are going on. As we all know that we have arrived at June once again. This is the uh, this is the month that this world has co-opted. Uh, again, this is an effort uh, at redefining and at going against God as the calendar is co-opted. And we've been talking about this over the last year or so or more uh, regarding the idea of culture and how important a, a people's calendar is in terms of a, a people's culture. And so as we see the godless and the enemy on the march and on the attack, one of the ways that they go about doing so is uh, is by taking the calendar and using it for their own purposes. And so June is considered in the world today uh, Pride Month. And uh, those are um, those are sad things and evil things that are around us. And there's a number of things in the news regarding that. And uh, and so, Jim, you have looked into a few of these things. And uh, what do you have for us today? Yeah, I mean, I call it Queer Month. So and uh, the the history it's so of it, politically incorrect. Yeah, I know, but that's what I call it. So I'm politically incorrect. All right, um, we'll go with it. 1924. It used to be called Society of Human Rights. That was their their mantra was. They wanted human rights. They wanted, that's where it would end. If we could just treat them the same, that that would end. But we we knew that wasn't the case. We knew that uh, this is a a war, it's a spiritual war, and there's no neutrality in this. So, and that led to coming out day in 1994. So that was, you know, within our our purview, right? We were around during that purview. Um, And recent news, so recent news is you had Target, which started promoting, uh, transgender stuff for this pride month that's coming up. So they put a bunch of things on their shelves, um, which were absolutely atrocious. They were kid related. They were, I'm not even going to describe it too much, but it was bathing suit related with room for unnatural things or, or things that don't belong in, in certain things. So I'm going to leave it at that. But so there's this big upheaval about target. And the good news is just like Bud Light, 
there was a campaign of resistance that went up against it and Target has now taken it out of certain stores and moved it to the back. But what we forget, what we forget is 10 years ago, 10 years ago, Target implemented these transgender bathrooms, this bathroom policy. And so we are numb to the world continuing to push their disgusting evil agenda on us. And we've got to be hardened against these things. And so I wouldn't even call it a protest against Target. Judy and I haven't shopped at Target for years. Highly recommend that none of us do that. I mean, it's just, if you can avoid it, you should, um, because they're evil and they continue that. And, you know, we see it all over the place. And I, I, I even laugh because on social media, you'll see people talking about the NBA finals and they love this team or they love that team or major league baseball. And here we have the Dodgers, right this week promoting the sisters of perpetual indulgence um it's this transgender group that is completely putting it in front of god's face they're crawling up and down the cross using it as their pole and uh, just continues to be in your face and the dodgers uh folded to this month of debauchery uh, in supporting them. Well, it started off that this group was there and they were being or being very offensive and people took offense because that's one of the things about the Dodgers and their history and Dodger Stadium that they've had uh they've had a relationship with nuns. They've had a relationship with with Catholic nuns attending the games and being part of it and shown on the big screen and there's just they've had a relationship with with the nuns and here come these uh, perverts that are mocking it, not not even just in a funny way, but in a perverted way, right. and uh, and so they were originally, if I recall, they were they were uh, kicked out or denied uh, certain permissions or whatever, and this is a reversal. Right. So this is now to um, to basically genuflect and and apologize for what happened previously, and now they're going to be given a platform and a stage to be visible and to be part of this pride month stuff in uh, at Dodger Stadium. Now, one of the things that we we have to think about and keep and realize um is that look, there's a number of professing believers um of course throughout the different professional sports leagues. I actually read an article uh recently by um Jason Whitlock, who talked about the reality that professional sports and actually organized sports, actually not professional sports necessarily, but organized sports was started by the YMCA. And it started as a move towards promoting masculine Christianity. And so here we are, the, we, we, once again, it's, it's what was created to be good. Uh, the, the devil and his people are are corrupting and turning into something ugly. And one of the challenges is that there's a lot of Christians that are still part of these teams. And I know of some, I'm not going to name any names uh, because I just don't know them well enough, but uh, I've heard of various uh, people who profess to be Christians on the Dodgers, just as a for instance. And yet last year, at least, and maybe even before that, I recall seeing that they were um, willing to go along with wearing the Dodger ball cap that was uh, where the white LA is, was a rainbow LA, and, um, and and so again they 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 wore the mask, <laughs> they they went along, they did what they thought they had to do, uh, rather than taking a stand. And what uh, is curious is will there be any 
believers taking a stand. There's been some over the last number of months in the National Hockey League. Some of the hockey players have said, no, we're not participating because we're Christians. This is, we're, we're not going to be forced to celebrating this stuff. And so some of them took a stand and, and they actually made a, a difference as well. But I would love to see some of the stars who would uh, profess to be believers on the Dodgers say, uh, fine, uh, I, I, I retire, I quit, or I, you know, whatever it is that put up a resistance that, uh, that fights back because this is ugly. This is perverted. Uh, the Dodgers, as I rec recall, uh, were owned by uh, a Christian family at one point. I believe the O'Malley's were, uh, were a Christian family. I, I could be wrong, but I, I believe that's correct. And, um, you know, and, and, and the Dodgers, interestingly, is the subject here. I, I was able to play at Dodger Stadium once in, in high school. And, uh, and, and, and to see that this is um, something that they've just folded like a cheap lawn chair to has been, um, has been just, uh, again, it's maddening. It's disappointing. And it's that demoralize, that continual demoralizing effect, as uh, I think we were talking with Mark a little bit earlier as well. This, um, it, it seems like everyone, every corporation, at least every large group is, uh, is seeing in their minds and what they're being told is the handwriting's on the wall, people. Uh, you, you've got to, uh, you've got to capitulate. You've got to bow. You have to uh, come to this pressure, or or you'll have consequences. And without a, a conviction, a core, a biblical understanding of the lordship of Christ and the truth of of Scripture, um, there's not much backbone then to resist because you're going to lose it. And why would you lose if if you think ultimately it is losing your life? And Christianity is about losing your life for Christ's sake, and that's when you actually find it. It's interesting because you've got, there's profession and then there's belief. We talk about right. profession of faith and then belief. These people are professing their belief in LGBTQ, and they are backing it up with action much more so than people that profess to know Jesus Christ and are not backing it up with their belief. And that, that, that's a message for all of us. Just because we profess the name of Christ, how does that demonstrate itself in our belief? How do we faithfully execute that belief in a fallen world? The children of the devil live with great conviction, don't they? Right. right. Exactly. And that's the point, is how much more should the children of God stand and be counted with him above all? Yeah, they're a smaller percentage yet winning. Or are they a smaller percentage? That's the real question. Well, yeah, there's there's <laughs> uh, a lot of that. But, uh, but yeah, this is... a. Uh, this is the uh, month of perversion, and we want to uh, highlight what the truth is and to identify that we stand against it, um, that we call it for what it is, and we want to um, oppose it with the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word um, as a whole. And we're very thankful for faithful men. You think about Jesse and the way he's resisting policies and things like that. That's the stuff we need to do, and we need to be public with it so that we all learn from Jesse and stand with him. That's right. Well, we return to our series also today on our church distinctives at TFBC, and we find ourselves in the middle of considering the doctrines of grace and the acronym TULIP. Last time we covered the U, which is for unconditional election. And I've said before, if the U is the most controversial doctrine of the five, the L is the most denied of them all. Uh, L stands for limited atonement. There's a lot of people who will accept the U, but uh, they just can't stomach the L, and we'll get into it today. But it's a wonderful and glorious doctrine, uh, but on top of it being the most 
rejected doctrine among the group. I would also say it is the most misunderstood, misrepresented, and poorly studied among the lot. So before we get into the meat of the discussion, I want to make an observation. Uh, you may be familiar with the term uh, four-point Calvinist. Uh, a four-point Calvinist is someone who says they believe all the other doctrines of grace, but they don't believe this one of limited atonement. And I believe, now again, these are my general observations I've made over the years, but I believe that most people who deny limited atonement mainly don't love the other four doctrines in the first place. They can't deny that the Bible teaches them, but they don't really see the other four doctrines as dominant biblical themes that ultimately highlight the glory of God. Most four-point Calvinists that I've observed don't talk much about the four points that they say they believe in, either very often or with much enthusiasm. But I believe that when you understand the doctrine of limited atonement, then you actually get excited about the other four. Now, that's my opinion and observation. It, it may not be universally true, but it is the appearance that four-pointers have given to me, and I hope to demonstrate why that is as we look into this doctrine. Now, a lot of people get hung up on the term itself, limited atonement. Uh, too many, to many, it sounds bad to limit Christ's work. Now, it's kind of ironic. We were just talking uh, previously about um, uh, unconditional election and uh, the issues of limiting God or limiting man. And, and uh, they actually wanted to limit God, uh, those who deny uh, unconditional election. They, they limit God and, uh, and want man to be unlimited. But in this uh, particular doctrine, there's a big concern for limiting God uh, based on this term. And uh, so it's just, uh, I just find that a little bit. They want their cake and eat it <laughs> That's too, Jamie. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so a lot of the time, people who are hung up on that term are already skeptical because of a lack of appreciation for election in the first place, and really trying to find for themselves a loophole that elevates the free will of man back into prominence, and unlimited atonement does just that. Now, at this point, I will say that both limited atonement and unlimited atonement are both logical outflows of their positions on election. If you believe that man is neutral or possesses an absolutely free will, then the atonement must be unlimited in its nature. But if you recognize that everyone who is ever saved was chosen by God before the foundation of the world, then it also logically follows that Christ died in order to accomplish salvation for those whom God chose. And it's not difficult at all, and I'll show you that, but limited atonement is often misunderstood, and so we have also described it in a few different ways. It just help us to add some clarity and specificity to the meaning of what we are saying. Some of you are familiar with those other descriptions. What are those names? Well, one is particular redemption. It doesn't sound so limited, it's just particular or the other one I also do like, it's definite atonement. Uh, those are ways that people speak about this same doctrine. Limited atonement, particular redemption, definite atonement, those are all the same thing. Now this doctrine answers the question, for whom did Christ die? Who did Christ die for? But it also answers the question, what did Christ's death on the cross actually accomplish? And so I want to begin by explaining what this doctrine teaches. Limited atonement means that we believe the Bible teaches that Christ's atoning work on the cross was as a substitute for sinners. It was a vicarious substitutionary atonement, which means that Christ took the place of sinners and died in their place. 
He took the guilt of their sin and the just condemnation for it, and he took God's wrath in the sinner's place and purchased forgiveness and became a propitiation for the sinner. Now, propitiation, that's a big word. We don't hear it uh, super often today, but what is propitiation? Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. It is the understanding that God's death, excuse me, Christ's death on the cross, satisfied, assuaged, appeased God's wrath against the sinner to whom Christ's work is applied. So if Christ's death was a propitiatory, wrath-satisfying atonement, then there are some more questions to answer, right? And so really, when you understand what the atonement is, it begins to be clear that the atonement actually accomplished something. It purchased our forgiveness. And a lot of people don't have a problem saying that, but the extent of what we mean by that is really important. Christ paid for our sins. It satisfied and took away God's wrath. And unless you are a universalist, believing that everyone goes to heaven, then you have limited the atonement to applying only to the elect. And that is where every Orthodox believer ends up. And that is why Calvinists are known for saying everyone limits the atonement. Even people who would say the atonement isn't limited or it's not uh, that particular doctrine, well, they still do limit it. And so unless you are a universalist, everyone limits the atonement. You have to, because if you say that Christ died for everyone or that Christ died for the world, you have to start defining and limiting what you are saying or you will end up being a universalist. Because if Christ died for everyone, then doesn't that mean everyone would go to heaven? If Christ actually purchased our forgiveness, if he took our place, if it's an actual atonement, then when you say that he died for everyone, then you have to explain then why doesn't everyone go to heaven unless you do believe that. Most people don't believe that everybody goes to heaven. Well, But what usually happens is you end up gutting and diminishing the crosswork of Christ. That's usually what happens. In order to defend this, this really important view of man's autonomy and his free will, really what ends up happening is, once again, as we talked about in the last episode, if you elevate man, you tear down God. And that's what happens usually with the atonement. It's Christ's work gets beat up and diminished. You end up making the atonement a very shallow, weak, cold, and unloving thing. But the doctrine of limited atonement is actually wonderfully precious to us because in it, we actually see God's special love and his careful intention that gets very personal. I would argue that the doctrine of limited atonement makes salvation personal, and the view of unlimited atonement makes it very general and not specific and cold. This doctrine of limited atonement stoops down from heaven, and it communicates that God in Christ died for you by name, specifically. You can actually say Christ died for you. In the other view, God didn't die for anybody in particular, nobody specific. He just did this general love of the world and applied and offers his sacrifice uh, willy-nilly to everyone, and, uh, and that's not exactly a personal love. Uh, God, we would say, pre-loved you, and he determined that he would send Christ to die for you specifically. Yeah, it makes the benefit of what he's done personal. That's right. Such an important concept. That's right. It actually gives so much more meaning to love. Yeah. No elect, no benefit. 
That's right. So now the Arminian view, again, emphasizing the, and protecting the free will of man as paramount, sees Christ's work as very impersonal because it is a work of potentiality. Christ died to make it possible for you to be saved. He didn't die to actually save anyone. He made it possible for you to be forgiven. His death was potentially a saving work for the whole world, but it does not become an actual atonement until you, the sinner, put your faith in Christ. So your salvation is far more dependent upon you than upon Christ. Well, and it puts the glory in what you did that instead of on God. It, it, again, we talked about this last episode, but it's it's building yourself up because I chose this or I, I, I decided this, but you're taking that glory from our creator. By robbing God, that's blasphemy, right? right? You're robbing God of his glory. Mm. Uh, and so this emphasis again is, is on when man reaches out for Christ um, rather than Christ reaching out for us. Well, we have a number of scripture passages to highlight. Um, let's consider Isaiah 53 verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So who did Christ die for? For the transgression of my people. He's dying for his people. Uh, that's an important concept. Matthew one twenty one, speaking of uh, the Incarnation, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save everyone, no, his people from their sins. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who does Jesus lay his life down for? Does he lay his life down for goats? Uh, does he lay his life down for everyone? No, he died for specific sheep. He died for the elect. His atonement was definite. It was not potential. It was particular. It was not general. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Christ loved his own. John 17 one through two, Jesus spoke, uh, this is the high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. So to start off with, he has authority over all flesh, but all who you've given me, uh, he may, that he may give eternal life. Eternal life is given to those whom the Father has given to Christ. And in verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask, this is really important, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Jesus is not praying for the whole world. He's praying on behalf of those who are his. He says, but of those who you have given me, for they are yours. He has specific people in mind. Uh, they are his people. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, this is, I think this is an overlooked idea. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Who did he love? And he gave himself up for who? For her. And that is a really key concept. Jesus died to purchase a bride. He didn't, he didn't per pursue the whole world. 
but his bride he sought and bought from out of the world. When you buy a wedding ring, the ring is for one girl. It's for one bride. You buy it for a particular woman, don't you? And that is part of answering the question, for whom did Christ die? He died for the church, who are elect sinners gathered out of the world and forgiven by Christ that we might be holy unto him. If Jesus died for the whole world, meaning everyone who has ever lived and who will ever live, then what did he accomplish? He actually accomplished nothing. He is waiting then to see who decides to choose him and become part of his bride. Yeah, it just turns it into potential. Total potential. Yeah, that's crazy. Yep, I'm dying for a possibility. Right, right, for an option. Yep, yep. Because we, as fallen creatures, want to protect our own autonomy. We deny the the specificity, the purpose, the love that God had in Christ. So we would say that that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Did Christ die for the sins of the whole world? If he did, then on what basis does anyone go to hell? If sins are paid for, then how could anyone go to hell? That's where you get into the gymnastics of calling the atonement a potential sacrifice that didn't actually pay for anyone's sin, but you get to claim forgiveness once you exercise your faith, and the emphasis, once again, is back on us. Let's talk also a little bit more about design. I want us to look for a minute at the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. To me, this is a powerful uh, example when we really study our Bibles. The sacrificial system pictured, it foreshadowed, it anticipated the perfect and complete once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross that put an end to the Jewish sacrificial system. That system was God's idea. It was good, but it was for a purpose, and it pictured what Christ's sacrifice would be like. But let's look at the broadest example of that sacrificial system in the Day of Atonement, uh, popularly understood or, or heard as Yom Kippur. And this is based on Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 22. And really, you have the regular sacrifices throughout the year and at different holidays, such as Passover. They had individuals and they had households bring sacrificial animals to be sacrificed for who? Well, for themselves. That sacrifice is applied to the people who brought them. Specific. Specific. Particular. Right. When when we think of um, Job bringing uh, sacrifices, they were on behalf of his children. Right. When you were, have a household, you would bring your sacrifice for your family. And in those cases, the sacrifices, again, applied only to the individuals or the household that brought them. Nobody brought sacrifices for others. They all applied individually and particularly, or shall we say the sacrifices were <clears throat> limited in their application to those for whom the sacrifice was intended. But in Leviticus 16, we have an annual ceremony called the Day of Atonement. And in this national holiday, the priest has a sacrifice for himself and his household, again, particular. And then there is a universal sacrifice and a universal scapegoat. Okay, oh, well, maybe we're getting into unlimited universal atonement. But that ceremony, however, was limited in verse 21 of Leviticus 16. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat 
and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. So this is the concept of the scapegoat. If you use that word scapegoat in in uh, the modern nomenclature, it stems back to this idea in Leviticus 16. But who was this universal sacrifice limited to? It was the iniquities of the sons of Israel. This sacrifice and scapegoat was not applicable or intended for or applied to the sins of Egyptians. It was not unlimited to account for the sins of the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Philistines, or any of the other people of the earth. The whole sacrificial system was designed to deal with the sins of individual people, their families, and the nation, which was the chosen covenant people of God. We talk about the reading plans. They go to Leviticus to die when you do an annual reading plan. The specificity that is in this is just beautiful, right? And it's it's to the person, to the family, to the church. I'll say church. You know, that's the picture of Israel that's we right. have here is the called u- out gathered ultimately people. the called out gathered people. Exactly. Not not everyone. That's right. So that's right. This is the closest thing to a universal atonement or unlimited atonement in the Bible, and it is completely and totally limited for whom it is intended. And so Christ's work is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was a like sacrifice, demonstrating that his atoning sacrifice was offered for the sins of his people, and more precisely, the elect. Christ died for the elect. Christ died to pay for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. The statement, Christ's death was sufficient for all, But effectual for only the elect, it is a fine statement on its own, but it isn't answering the question, for whom did Christ die? It doesn't supply any meaningful objection either to the doctrine of limited atonement. People get all caught up, and they try to rescue God's reputation by saying that Christ's death was universally powerful to save everyone. And I would say, amen, that's not debatable. And it's not the, but it's also not the question. Of course, Christ's death is powerful to save everyone. But what we are saying is the scripture limits the atoning work of Christ to be intended for and designed to apply to only those whom he has chosen to love in a saving way. Christ died for the elect, which means he died for all those whom the Father gave him. And that brings us back to the nature of the atonement in the first place. First, Christ's work was redeeming. Christ redeemed us actually, not potentially. First Peter 1, 18-19 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, the meaning of redemption is to buy back. It is a payment. It is paying of a price normally used in a slavery context where the slave price was paid in order to set that slave free. Second, Christ's work is propitiatory. We've already mentioned this in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom... God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that's the satisfaction of God's wrath, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, 
he passed over the sins previously committed. So again, Christ's work was a propitiation. It satisfied wrath. And if God's wrath, if God's no longer angry toward sinners, and he it, and he did it, died for everybody, well then on what basis would anybody go to hell? The reality is it's an actual atonement. It's an actual propitiation, which means it must be only for those it was intended for. Third, Christ's work brought reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ potentially reconciling, no, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Uh, This is what the atonement did. It was that which brings God and man into a relationship of peace, because the sins of man have been paid by the one who was a suitable sacrifice with his blood. He did this for people of the world, both Jew and Gentile, without distinction, but he didn't do it for the whole world without exception. I think that's an important uh, understanding. We are not universalists. Uh, we understand that the, that when he is reconciling the world, that is what he is doing from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he is reconciling his elect uh, throughout the world and throughout history to himself. And so many people with unconditional election and with this limited atonement, they'll go, well, then why do we evangelize? Why do we build disciples? What's the purpose of doing that? Well, the first and foremost is because we're, we're, we're to be obedient. We're called to do that. And I like the way Dr. White says it is we don't get to lift up their shirt and see if they have an E on their back, right? And so, you know, we're, we're called to do that, but, you know, we don't know who all the elect are. And so we're still called to bring God's word to the world. Yeah, Even the Israelites were, were called to do that. Yeah, and that's God's prerogative to know who are his elect. Right. Well, we are called to be his instruments. So he's not only ordained that that his elect will believe and be saved, but he's also ordained the means by which they will be, and that is through the preaching of his word. Right. That's through the faithfulness of messengers. That is his normative means. And that's what I was going to say. That is a test of our faith that we go out and share the gospel. So it's a reflection of our faithfulness in God as well. That's right. It's part of our sanctification. And one of the benefits of it is to realize that uh, that God's word will do its work. Right. And ultimately, we are not the ones who save anybody. Right. And so God's word will not return void. It will accomplish its purposes. It will harden those who uh, will be hardened. It will it will be the means of grace to those who are God's elect. And so the the pressure is off us in terms of the results, but the responsibility is on us for the faithfulness, and that's uh, that's our calling, that's and right. that's why that's why when we are saved, we're not immediately transported to heaven. We have a responsibility to live for God in this world, right, and represent Him. Well, that's all the time that we have for truth today. We want to thank you once again for joining us, and until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and His Church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth.